Okay, First Timothy chapter 5. Paul, remember that Paul, in his, this first letter to Timothy, writes to explain how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which he says is the church, church universal, and by extension the, the local church as well. And over the past couple of weeks, we've considered the church's responsibility to take care of widows who are widows indeed. The most vulnerable uh, population group in any local church, namely widows. Um, and the widows indeed are those widows in the congregation who are walking in fellowship with God, who have a need, and who don't have family to help them meet that need. That's a, a summary of what we've learned so far. But tonight, we, Paul shifts subjects, and he, he moves from the church's responsibility to widows to the church's responsibility to the elders in the church. Tonight, we consider that aspect. When we studied the qualifications for this office uh, several weeks back, the office of elder, we found out that the terms elder, bishop, and pastor are used interchangeably in the New Testament for the same office. Now, each term, elder, bishop, and pastor, each term describes a different uh, aspect of the office or a different um, function within the office, but it's the same office. For example, the term elder, presbyteros, where we get the denomination, the name for the denomination, the Presbyterians. Uh, the, the, the office, the, the aspect of elder that's emphasized within this office is the leadership aspect. Uh, the leadership aspect. When we, when we come to the term episkopos, and you can probably hear the term episcopalian in that name. An episkopos was an overseer, typically of a large estate. And so the, the term bishop, uh, again, synonymous with elder and pastor, emphasizes rather the administrative aspect of a ministry. So if, if one went by the title bishop, they probably were, would be stressing their administrative duties. And then finally, there's the title pastor. And pastor is the, the Greek term poimen, and poimen was, a, poimen was a shepherd, one who handled the, the, uh, the, the feeding, the protection, the comfort, the care of the flock. Now, all these overlap. And, and it's my understanding of the New Testament that, that elder, bishop, and pastor, while they're different aspects, are still the same office. So pastors should have leadership uh, abilities. They should have administrative abilities. And elders should be apt to teach. I, I don't really see, there's going to be a passage that comes up here a little bit in about the middle of tonight's lesson. Uh, I don't see uh, the office of elder in the New Testament, an elder that's a non-teaching elder. Because elders, as part of their responsibility, have to be able to teach. Now, they may not be teaching on a regular basis, but they've got to be able to teach. I don't see the office as it is practiced in many churches today, strictly as, strictly as administrative, with, it, with no possibility of teaching at all. That doesn't seem to be the New Testament office of elder. And you need to remember that, that sometimes when we go back to and we, we sit down and discuss things, like discuss things on angels, or we discuss things with regard to the church, and somebody comes up and says, well, where do you get that from? And we start, we, we stop, we scratch our heads, so that's just kind of the way we've always done it. You know, there, there's, there's, not, there's not a mandate for non-teaching elders in the New Testament. I, I suppose we could stretch it and have it be allowed, but I just don't, I don't see it. If you're an elder, you're supposed to be able to teach. Whether you actually function that way very often or not, that's part of the package. And if you're a pastor, you should be... Have, have some administrative skills, and certainly you should have some leadership skills. But now let's look and see what happens uh, with regard to this information, how we are to treat the elders. 
In verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, Paul is going to give kind of a rapid-fire sequence of of issues that, that concern elders in the church. The first one is this idea of double honor. Now, it's clear, very clear from the context here, when Paul uses the word elder in verse 17, he's not just simply speaking of the older men in the church, the, the senior men in the church. He's speaking about this particular office. Um, Paul had already given the qualifications for this office back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We studied that again some time ago. And now he described them as ruling, preaching, and teaching. Uh, from this verse, we... We learned something about the more specifics of the duties of an elder. And Paul says here, let the elders who rule well. In today's Christian culture, that's not a real politically correct translation, but that's an accurate one. Nobody likes to be ruled over. Nobody really likes to submit to any legitimately delegated leadership either, but it's here. And, and, and Peter will, t- will tell us later, in, in fact, I'd like for you to turn there with me, because I want to keep this in perspective, to Peter's first epistle, the fifth chapter. As Peter ends this information here, he uh, ends the information in First in, in Peter, he says in chapter 5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now it's verse 3 that I want you to see. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Listen again. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. But yet in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 or 17, let the elders who rule well. You see, you can exercise authority without lording it over someone. And see, this is the delicate balance that the pastor, elder, or bishop, whatever term you want to use, this is the delicate balance that has to take place. There is authority to be exercised, but that authority should be exercised in love and not, not with an iron fist and lording it over someone. Yes, there is authority, but it shouldn't be lorded over. But let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now, we need to spend just a moment or two on the double honor situation. Paul would probably be able to tell you, I don't know if Will, I don't see Will back there tonight, but anybody who's in this particular position will tell you, we always would kind of wish we were absent on the night that this particular passage came up. Because, and let somebody else preach it, because it's, frankly, it's a, it's a little bit uncomfortable for any pastor to preach this particular passage, but it's part of the Word of God. If you'll allow me, I'm just going to preach it. Now, what double honor means is, is first of all, a pastor should be respected. A pastor should be respected. A pastor should be respected because of the office, if nothing else. Um, just, just as though, just as if, if the, the President of the United States was to walk in here and just somebody came and announced the President of the United States is here, and he walked into this room, I hope that everyone would stand. Because that, that is the custom when the President of the United States enters the room. And I hope you would stand, no matter what political party you, you were involved in, no matter whether you liked the d- recent decisions a, a particular president has made or not, I hope you would stand out of respect. There is a certain amount of respect and honor that's due 
because of the office. And it's always been that way, all the way back to George Washington's time. And in fact, there was a lot of discussion about how the President of the United States should be addressed. They, they spent a lot of time in the early con uh, colonial days on that. But there's a certain amount of respect in, in, a, in a similar way, but, but not perfectly parallel. But in a similar way, there's a certain amount of respect that should be due for the office of pastor-teacher. Because it's a delegated office from God. It doesn't mean that you agree with everything that that particular pastor does, but there's a certain amount of honor that is, that is due there. But that's not the only thing. There's also honor in the sense of financial remuneration or financial care. Um, in the early days of the church, we had a visitor come, and, and they found out that the church was paying me $300 a month. And he said he'd never come back. And I, and I said, why would you never come back? And, and he said, because they're paying you $300 a month. He said, that's not biblical. I said, well, okay. Hit the road. I mean, it is, it is biblical. In fact, it would be unbiblical not to. I'm not going to have somebody like that here. If that's your view, I love you. you know, but you're, you're terribly wrong. About, about the scripture. In, in fact, Paul says it here. Now, some have taken it, and, and it could be understood this way let the pastors, or let the elder who rules well, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, be considered worthy of double honor. There's, there, it could be understood that the double honor is double remuneration. Now, what this passage doesn't say is that, that, that they should, that that's necessarily the prescription for how a pastor should be paid. You, know, you, you take whatever the standard is and you double it. That, that's, not, that's not what the, the passage is saying. It's they should be considered worthy of that. Okay. You see why it's uncomfortable to preach? I was listening to the radio this morning, and they were on... Forgive me, I was listening to 610 Sports Talk on the way in. And they were talking about a particular player that's going to be on the free agent market next year. And his name's not important, but he's not that good a player, I don't think. But, but everybody was calling and saying, he's not that good a player, he's not that good a player. And then somebody calls up and said, you know, you could get him for $14 million one year, $14 million. And he's a little bit above average baseball player. Uh, Tom Cruise is making 10 to, 10 to $14 million every time he makes a movie. Now, all Paul is doing here is trying to keep things in perspective you know, there are people that are neurosurgeons that work on people's brains, and, and if, if I'm going to a neurosurgeon to work on my brain, I, I hope that they're paid well enough that they can, they've got plenty of rest, that they've been able to buy whatever books they wanted to buy, and they could, you know, they could be taken care of. Um, our culture is just really backwards. When it, when it comes to the real value of different offices. And again, I, please don't, don't take this to be self-serving at all. Our church takes care of me extremely well. I appreciate it so much. Uh, and I'm not just pandering by, by saying that. It's really true. I appreciate it. So this is, this is certainly nothing personal here, but I've had friends that were literally starved, starved out of their positions. I had a friend in Oregon one time who had to borrow money from his dad to pay for the U-Haul to, to get out of town when he finally had enough. He didn't have the, the fifteen hundred bucks to, to go down and put the deposit down on the U-Haul. They they started. They made sure he didn't have enough money to go to the movie, because you know you know why they did it. Because they figured if they kept him starving, that he couldn't go anywhere. You see, uh, how evil that is, and it's not biblical. Now now Paul goes on to say that especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now 
Some people have taken this to say, well, the ones who are worthy of the double honor are the ones who preach and teach, but the, non, the non-preaching and teaching elders, uh, they're only worth uh, maybe a little something else. I don't think that that's what that's doing, is, is bringing up two different categories of elders. I think it's saying, listen, especially if someone's going to work hard at the task, then take care of them. And, and that's what it's saying. Now, he backs it up here by two scriptural authorities in, uh, in verse 18. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, the first passage comes from Deuteronomy, and it is a a quotation from Deuteronomy 25. And and Moses, being quoted by Paul, is basically saying, listen, if you've got... And I don't know, maybe we ought to be flattered by being called oxes, but if you've got an ox that's out there plowing the field and you starve him, then the field's not going to get plowed for very long. You may say, well, listen, we're going to cut corn. We're going to cut expenses here. We're not going to feed the ox anymore. Well, you're not going to get the, 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 the field plowed anymore either. So that, this, is, this is a quotation from Old Testament. But also, Paul quotes New Testament. Actually, he quotes Jesus, Luke chapter 10, verse 7, by saying, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, it's interesting here. If Paul meant that both of these passages were Scripture, and it's possible by the construction that he did, if he meant that, then he's saying both Deuteronomy and Luke are Scripture. Then that's possible. He may just be saying that Deuteronomy is Scripture. And that's, that's a very possible way to understand it. But he is at least saying, he's at least saying that by the time Paul writes First Timothy, that Deuteronomy is considered to be Scripture. So there was some sort of, of understood canon uh, for Old Testament even at this time. So um, the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. I hope that's sufficient. I hope uh, this church has never had a problem with that. And, I, and I, so I, I trust that I'm preaching to the choir on that. So let me move to the next uh, issue with regard to elders, and this is an important one. This is a serious one. There's not going to be any joking about this one. This is a very serious aspect of church life. Look at verse 19. Sometimes misunderstood, often misapplied in, 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 a, in a polarized direction. I want to, I'm going to bring this out. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. It seems as though criticism of leadership is, has become somewhat of a favorite spectator sport. Paul directs Timothy here to direct those in the church at Ephesus not to entertain, not to entertain an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two to three witnesses. Uh, and another way that it could be put is you don't entertain accusations against pastors unless there's sufficient evidence to do so. Pastors are easy targets. I, hey, I'm a realist. I understand. I know that my sermons are evaluated by every family, at least when you get around to it, uh, on every trip to the restaurant after the service. Well, I didn't agree with him today. 
That's cool. I hope you have a decent reason for that. I hope you spent a little time studying the passage before you decided to disagree. But, but the, the point is, pastors are easy targets. And oftentimes we're easy targets of criticism by people who have no business criticizing at all, frankly. You know, that are not really qualified to criticize. Is this coming out right? That are not, that are not, really, that are, that are not really qualified to do so, but it's part of the job. It's, it's not part of the job. It's part of the, the ministry. We understand that. And you have to develop somewhat of a thick skin and a lot of patience with people in order to, to put up with it when they come charging up to the pulpit and disagree after having heard something for 30 seconds and you just got through spending 20 hours studying. I understand that. But the thing we've got to be careful with is not allowing someone to randomly, haphazardly, throw out an accusation against one who's a pastor or pastor teacher and have that accusation destroy the reputation of that pastor teacher unless there is some serious, some serious evidence that that accusation could be true. Can you see why? Because Paul is going to charge Titus with the same thing about preach and teach regardless of the consequences and correct these people who are in error. Now, sometimes people like that and sometimes they don't. And so it's rather easy to throw out an accusation that has no basis in truth at all and to, to assassinate the character of the messenger and churches get destroyed that way. So... Paul is, is telling Timothy, don't even receive the accusation. Now, you've got to listen to it. And this is, this is, uh, this is more for the church body, or at least in our, in our case, it would be, say, for a board of deacons. Somebody comes to the board of deacons, did you hear that? Well, unless you've got somebody else who's going to back you up, you may as well keep it to yourself. Now, this does not mean that no accusation can ever be made against a pastor. That's not what it says. Pastors are not immune. Pastors don't get to do whatever they want to. Pastors are not a law unto themselves. All this passage is saying is, to Timothy, teaching the, the churches how they should conduct themselves in the household of God, is you better go slowly. And you better make sure you have the evidence, because once a, once a character has been assassinated, once, once a man's character has been assassinated, then it is very difficult, if not impossible, to get it back. So those who, are, who serve on boards, and many of you have here, know how difficult it is to handle a situation when things are thrown at you. you have, you've got to filter it out and say, is this something legitimate? Is there enough evidence that this has taken place for us to take the next step? If there's not, then you're going to have to take the flack when they say, well, why didn't you do something about that? He says, well, because listen, I love you, but uh, we're going to do it scripturally. We don't have enough evidence, and you don't have enough people corroborating that evidence. This, is, this again, is coming from Old Testament. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, let's say there are two or three witnesses. Let's, let's say there is, there is credible information that, that what, is, what the pastor has been accused of is actually true. Now, you, you haven't gotten necessarily to a trial situation yet, but at, at least you can receive the accusation and then that's, that's when boards then really have a difficult job because they've got to sit there and, and pass judgment upon the one that's, that they've been helping lead a church. And, and I hope our church never has to go through that. I know churches that have had to do it, and it's terribly painful. Oh, it, it's, you talk to the people that have had to go through that, and, and oftentimes it's years before the pain leaves the men who have to sit in judgment on something like that. Nobody wants to have to do that. 
They, they would, people would walk around the world the opposite way to keep from having to do that. But sometimes it happens. That's why you need to be praying for those who are in, in, in a leadership position in a local church. Uh, but that they'd have the wisdom to handle something like that. Now, uh, suppose that that has happened, and whatever the offense is, is not something that uh, disqualifies one from ministry, but is, is something that is, is bad enough that it needs to be brought up. You know, that happens sometimes. That whatever, that whatever was done may not be bad enough to disqualify from future ministry, but is bad enough that the pastor has to be brought up. How should it be handled? Well, it should be handled solemnly. It should be handled reverently, but it should be handled firmly. And, and by the way, anybody that goes into ministry either does or should know this before they go in. You either do or you should know. And if you don't, shame on you. Before you go in, you've got to know that this is the price you pay if this is the life that you choose. Now, there are great rewards to being a pastor as well. I wouldn't trade it. And again, that's my giftedness. I wouldn't feel fulfilled doing anything else. I, I'm, I'm thrilled with it. But i got to know that, it, that if there's something that I do that is out of line, then I very well could be disqualified from ministry. And there's, if there's something that I do that's out of line that doesn't disqualify me, then I very may, very may well be brought up before the entire congregation. They said, this is what he did, and he needs to apologize to the congregation for it. That's the part of the rebuke. And so look, this is, this, I told you this is serious stuff. Those who continue in sin. Now, the, we're, we're still speaking of the, the elder pastor bishop. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all. Uh, this doesn't happen very often uh, at all in America today. And sometimes when it does happen, it, it happens in, with a lynch mob mentality, and it's wrong. But, but if, if it meets these criteria... The point is, it can't just be handled behind closed doors. If it, if it meets, there's a threshold that, that those in leadership are going to have to decide. Did it, did it meet this threshold? Because if it's, if it's kicked underneath the rug, and say three-quarters of the congregation knows about it, and they look and see what the board did, and uh, they say, well, well this, was a, this was a pretty horrible thing, and the board took no action at all on it, you know, they just kind of swept it under the rug, what's that board going to do? if that individual ever comes up with a discipline situation in the church. You see, and then what happens if the board publicly rebukes an individual member of the church? Have you, have you ever heard of the word hypocrisy? That's what happens. Sometimes, sometimes church boards will, will rebuke individual members very publicly, but then if, then if the leadership is ever doing something, it's a very private thing. But that's not what this says. That... They are to be rebuked in the presence of all for a reason. So that the rest also may be fearful of participating in sin. You might see in the New American Standard that the word of sinning is in the italics. It needs to be inserted in there. The reason, really the only reason that it should be made public is so that, if you'll forgive me, that the fear of God is put into everybody. To see that this kind of thing, whatever it may be, it's, it's non-specific here. This word for sin is just the general word for sin. There's no, no other clue as to what it could be. And that's why church boards have to have the wisdom to know when, when it reaches that threshold. That's why you better be careful who you vote for when it comes to your, your, um, your in this church, when, when it comes to your deacons. I pray that they never have to go through something like this. I'm going to do, I ask God for me personally that it will never happen. I know certainly Paul feels the same way. That this is the last thing that we ever want to have happen. But we certainly pray for the wisdom of the, 
of church leadership in this way. You know, sometimes churches are so good and they run so well over so many years, nothing like this ever comes up. And then when it does come up, sometimes the, the board is woefully unprepared to handle it. I would rather go through that and have the board woefully unprepared to handle it than have it happen so regularly that they have a lot of experience doing that. So the, the, the understanding is, is not so much in verse 20 that so the rest, meaning the rest of the elders, so the rest of the elders would be afraid of doing anything like that. It would be so that the rest, meaning the rest of the congregation, may be fearful of sinning or fearful of participating in wanton, uh, unrestrained, uh, consistent sinning. I told you that was kind of a difficult two verses. Now, in verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, without bias, doing nothing with a spirit of partiality. You know, sometimes people have, have built up what I would call enough spiritual currency you know, they, they've been around a long enough period of time that they've developed friendships and, and people love the ones that are in leadership at a church, the, the pastor of a church. And, and that's, what, that's what makes, again, this so very, very difficult when one actually is, is best friends or when one loves deeply the person that, that may have to be rebuked publicly. Uh, but it's got to be done without bias and it's got to be done without partiality. And, and I know those. I know men who have had to go through this, and it's like like somebody had, had taken a knife and dipped it in salt and then stabbed them in the heart with it. It's that painful when it has to happen, but that's the responsibility. And again, just like I said a minute ago, anybody that goes into the ministry knows that this is the standard that you're held to. Also, men that serve on on deacon boards or elder boards, if that's the type of church government a church has, you got to know that going into it. There may be times when very difficult decisions have to be made. And you're going to have to live with those. You'll either be blessed by doing it right, or you'll be disciplined by doing it wrong. This is a challenging thing. Now, Paul says, I solemnly charge you. Can, could, he have said it, could he have said it any more earnestly than that? I solemnly charge you in the presence of, watch this, God, Christ Jesus, and his chosen angels. This is one of those passages. Uh, this is one of those passages in the study of angels that at least gives us an idea that angelic beings are watching the church. See, certainly God is watching the church. Certainly Jesus Christ is watching the church. But, but the elect angels are also watching the church, too. And sometimes it can be pictured as, as though they're in the stadium and we're on the playing field. And they're watching. They're, they're, wanting, they're, they're, they're observing the faithfulness or lack of faithfulness of human beings. We're on display. That's, don't get freaked out by that. But we are on display. Our faithfulness is on display. And when Paul says, I'm charging you, I'm making this very, very clear, and I'm going to make it clear not only in front of you, Timothy, but in front of God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels, I want you to maintain these principles without bias. And do nothing in a spirit of partiality. It's one of the toughest passages I think we've had in a long time. I mean, it's a sobering passage. But just because a board member may may be even best friends with the pastor, if that pastor is out of line, then then the same standard that would be 
that, that they would hold any individual member of the congregation to, they, they've got to hold that pastor to as well. In fact, it's a higher standard. But there can be no partiality. There can be no bias. Now Paul moves on to another subject that is, is different but related in verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. And then he tells Timothy on a personal note, you keep yourself free from sin. So you better practice what you're preaching, Tim. Now he's going to have some other uh, advice for Timothy in verse 23, but let's pause here for just a minute and, and, and try to grasp what this means. The laying hands here apparently was part of the ordination process. I, I was ordained uh, about nine years ago, ten, ten years ago, something like that now, and it was an incredible thing. I, I bet there were probably... Uh, 20 or 25 men that were involved in that that night, something in that range. And and all these these men came up as representatives of that church, and, and they, they laid their hands upon me while one of the pastors prayed for me and for the other men. Moses on Wabika was, was one of them who was right next to me. And it was an awesome thing because what, what they were saying was, we are, we are, we're with you. And it could also we're, we're giving a seal of approval to this man. We're backing him. It's, we're writing a letter of recommendation for him, but it's more than a letter of recommendation. We're laying hands on him. We're, we're showing I'm with him. It's very, very symbolic, very important. And I, and I tell you, I told you this a few weeks ago, but I, but I'll remind you, uh, I was so exhausted by the the exam, which I had a great time on on Saturday, preaching at, at my own church on Sunday morning. By the time I got there. I wasn't even really focusing on the laying of hands part, but boy, my mind changed when it happened. It was a very significant event, a very humbling event. I mean, chills, chills literally went up me, and I, I could feel goosebumps on me. I almost felt like, almost felt like, almost like electricity or something. There, it was very special, significant moment because these men, as representatives of the church. We're saying, we are saying that you are worthy of this task. We're, 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 we're backing you. We are approving you in a public way. And now you see what Paul's saying? Don't do that too hastily. That's pretty serious. Because if you do, I, I don't know if you've ever been in this position. I've had to write letters of recommendation for people for just a ton of things in the past. Now, way, way back in the past, somebody came and won a letter of recommendation. I might not even know him very well. I'm talking about way, way back. Yeah, sure, here you go. Fine guy, be a, an asset to your institution. Uh, you should be very happy to have him. Bruce Baumgartner. You know, I quit doing that. I quit doing it probably 20 years ago. Uh, the reason I quit doing it is because when I signed my name to that, what happens if that person goes to that medical school or to that college or to that seminary or wherever they may, they may be going, and they turn out to be a total jerk? And they, they go back into the folder and look and say, well, who was it that recommended this guy anyway? Bruce Baumgartner. You see who it reflected back on? Reflected, it would reflect back on me. When people ask for a recommendation, they're asking you honestly, hey, listen, you know that person. Would you hire them for this position? I mean, people ask me that sometimes, you know, and I give them an honest answer. I do. So if you put me down for a reference, then, then no, I mean, I'm going to give them an honest answer. I can't do anything but that. But in, this, in the same way, if someone comes to a church and says, hey, listen, I want you to ordain me, 
Well, there's a process that has to be undergone before that takes place. And in my view, it's half and half. We think of the doctrinal stance, of course. But there's more than just the doctrinal stance. There's the character issues. And sometimes people, I know of churches that have had to say, hey, listen, good doctrine, but bad character. Can't do it. Good doctrine, but I just don't see you as having that particular giftedness. Love you, but can't do it. And that's, people get really mad about that. But it, but it happens from time to time to time. Other time people say, hey, listen, great guy, but held in those doctoral views, I can't, I can't place my seal of approval on you. Because if, if, say, for example, in Pine Valley Bible Church, if you go out from here, people are going to expect you to hold to a certain doctrinal stance. And if they, you know, you go over in Africa and they start preaching tongues and they look back and say, who ordained you? Well, over from Pine, I'm from Pine Valley. Then there's going to be people scratching, what, what's, what's up with that? You know, I mean, I thought Pine Valley was a was conservative evangelical church. I didn't know they were Pentecostal. You see the point? If you're going to send somebody out with your seal of approval, you better check them out first. And here's the scary part. Not just for the elders, I don't think. In my view, it's for the whole church. If you lay hands on someone and if you ordain them too hastily, and then they go out and mess up, Guess what this passage says? You're sharing, you're sharing responsibility for the sins of others. I'll be up front with you. I commit enough sins on my own. I don't need to share responsibility for yours. And nor do you want to share responsibility for mine. How would you like to be the ordaining church of a, of a pastor who was sent out in good faith um, as a man of character, and then that pastor ends up having sexual relations with a number of people in the congregation. And they go back and say, wait a minute. Didn't your ordination mean anything? When you, when you put your seal of approval on them, didn't it mean anything? Apparently not. This is serious business. Now, here's, here's the most serious thing I'll tell you tonight, because this involves not just me, or just not myself and Paul. This involves all of you. If we as a church ordain someone too hastily. Now, everybody can make a mistake, but the too, too hastily part says without doing your due diligence. Now, we can't be responsible if, if we did in, in good faith, if, if we did everything we could, we took our time, and we did a thorough examination of the candidate, we asked for references from people that we know would really give the references, we talked to them, and then 20 years down the road, then they did a lot of things. That, 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 I don't believe that's going to come back on the church, but if they do it too hastily, like it's just a diploma mill, if it's an ordination mill, and that person goes out there and ruins some other church, guess who's going to pay for it? Everybody in the church that ordained them. Now you see why I say it's serious business? God, God kind of takes this seriously, doesn't he? I mean, when, when, when Tim, uh, Paul tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and, and in the presence of his chosen angels, do you think it's serious? In the presence of everybody that's watching, I'm charging you to be careful with this. So don't lay hands on someone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Now, Paul does throw in some personal information for Timothy here. He's going to be the communicator of this, and he's saying you're not above this either, sport. You need to make sure that you keep yourself free from sin. Now, this does not mean perfection, never has, never will. It means to be above reproach. It means to be walking consistently in fellowship with God. If we begin to hold our pastors 
to a, a, a standard of perfection, then we can just shut the doors now because I'm not going to meet it. Paul's not going to meet it. Will's not going to meet it. And nobody here going to meet it. So we may as well just all pack up and go home. And nobody in any church is going to meet it. It's not a standard of perfection, but it is a standard of walking consistently in fellowship with God. And that's what should be demanded. So, so in the last part of verse 22 and also in verse 23, Paul almost takes um, a parenthetical stance and, and gives Timothy some personal advice. No longer, in verse 23, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy apparently was a person who was sickly. And the the water in the ancient world was not the purest in the world. I mean, we go buy bottled water because we're not happy with the tap water. They would have been very much happy just to have the tap water back then because there were a lot of impurities in the water. And so Paul's telling Timothy, apparently Timothy didn't drink wine or wouldn't do it for whatever reason. He's saying, hey, listen, quit being so stubborn. Have a little wine for your stomach, even here for medicinal purposes. The alcohol will go clean out some of those uh, bacteria or viruses or whatever may be floating around in the stomach um, because that seemed to be his problem. Also, it's been, it's, it has been a source of speculation. I don't know if this would be true or not, but a lot of times when people are under tremendous stress, this, this is where they get it. You know, don't you know, a lot of people will, will get it right here. They, they carry their stress right here in their stomach, and then intestinal distress can result from physical stress. Happens to a great percentage of the, of the population. I'm not talking about the weight. <laughs> I'm talking about the stress. <laughs> I'm talking about intestinal distress. Do I need to go any further? I hope not. That's why he says, have a little wine for the sake of your stomach, your frequent ailments. Some have speculated that, that Timothy was in a position of great stress, because all these things apparently were going on in the church at Ephesus, that, he, that, that the stress had made him sick. It's possible. I, I wouldn't want to dwell on it because uh, I, I don't think we can be dogmatic from the text. But Paul has taken a little parenthesis for Timothy that started with, keep yourself free from sin and no longer drink uh, water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, in the time that we have left, just a couple minutes, if you'll allow me, in verses 24 and 25, he goes back to the idea of the elders. The parenthesis has stopped. And he said, the sins of some men are evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are, uh, that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So Timothy needed to be cautious about choosing church leaders, because sin is not always obvious as soon as someone practices it. That's the patience I recommended a minute ago, not doing it too hastily. Uh, I had a fellow in the early days of our church that called me from another state, and he was upset that a, another local church here in Houston wouldn't ordain him. And, um, and he asked me, would I? And I said, well, before I could ordain you, I'd have to talk to the other church, to the leadership of that other church, and find out why they wouldn't ordain you. Well, why do you got to do that? Are you you're insulting me? I mean, are you uh, are you accusing me? I said, no, I'm not accusing you of all, at all. But but uh, there, knowing that particular church says in the leadership there, there's probably a reason why. Uh, I, I assume that there was a reason why. Well, they don't, and, and he just bar- gave me this barrage of just hateful speech. And I said, sir, I see why they didn't ordain you. <laughs> I said, did you talk to them this way? I sure did. And I said, well, there you go. I said, I can't. And of course, then he was mad at me, too. 
I, I hope nobody did ordain him. And, and until, and I understand that, that this particular guy, I understand he did turn his life around a little bit later, so maybe it may be later, but have the patience to do it. Now, his, his anger was evident right up front. Other people can fool you for a while. That's why ordination here is, is, is not a, something we take lightly at all. I'm going to have to know you for a long time, or at least in a very serious way. And, and watch you exercise your, your personality in a, in a variety of circumstances before that's going to take place. Because frankly, my friends, I'm not going to suffer for your sins. I'm not going to, I, don't want to, I don't want to be disciplined for the sins that you have committed if, if you're ordained by this church. So all, all Paul is saying here in, in summary is that some people you can tell right up front what their flaws are. Others, you need to know them for a while. Now... In these verses, and I know we're, we're out of time for tonight, but to summarize, the, those who serve in pastoral leadership should be respected, taken care of financially, and not made the target of random and baseless accusations. It doesn't mean that an accusation cannot be made, but it needs to have sufficient evidence in order for it to be taken seriously, because character assassination will destroy a minister. But with the position of elder, pastor, or bishop in a church also comes great responsibility to live consistently with the requirements that are set out in the pastoral, in the pastoral letters. It's not the prescription of the word for the congregation to ever just look the other way at pastoral sinning. Uh, Paul makes that clear here. Uh, that's not what the passage teaches. The, the acceptance of the accusation against the pastor should only be engaged in in view of clear evidence and then only after a thorough investigation. And you should be very, very careful, Paul teaches this congregation, as to, the, as to ordaining a man too hastily because there are consequences that come from that hasty decision.